Welcome to the ISO on the Gonzaga Nation Media Network. I'm your host, Dan Dickow. Excited to have today's guest. He's been with us uh, in the past. He is one of the premier journalists across the country, hosts a radio show in the Portland, Oregon area. I believe it's syndicated in a few different networks across the, the country, but he has gone independent as a journalist. Looking forward to hearing what transpired with that and the overall landscape of sports media. So none other than John Canzano. John, thanks for joining. Yeah, I love being here, man. Let's, uh, this is great. Well, let's start right off. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Let's start right off with the ever-changing sports media landscape. Uh, I've I've read your article for a number of years. Um, I've listened to your radio show on, on a number of occasions when I've been down in the Portland area. You seem to always be at the forefront of what's happening. Um, can you explain to us what you see happening in the world of sports media right now? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, we're at a time where, you know, media, there's this convergence really where TV stations are doing more writing, obviously. Radio stations are into video, uh, newspapers are into podcasts, like everybody's doing everything. So I've kind of watched that to go and uh, I really, really figured out, I think in the last couple of years that my readers were coming directly to me. And so now people can read me at johnconzano.com. I am covering the things that I want to cover. I'm writing about the things I want to write about, but uh, you know, the PAC 12 is uh, generally a area of focus for me and, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And then the radio show, it airs, it started in Portland, like, and it, it wasn't supposed to be like 15 or 17 years of radio, but like 15 years Portland. Now the show is statewide in the state of Oregon. So it's been a lot of fun. How do you keep a radio show fresh for 15 to 17 years? I, I host, I was a co-host of a sports talk radio show for about 20 months or so. And, uh, the hard part for me was I didn't have a lot of interest in baseball. So the summer dog days were difficult. I knew enough about football to have some comments or some opinions, um, but how do you keep it fresh? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the column does help. It helps that I write because then I have things to talk about, but also I get good guests, right? We had president Obama on the show once and uh, we get the football coaches from around the PAC 12 on the show. And we have, uh, athletic directors from around the Pac-12 on the show, but it, it's probably not that different, Dan, than when you were playing in the NBA and people say, hey, how do you continue to get better and stay in this league? You don't think 10 years out, right? You think about what I can do right now in the next 15 minutes. And I often find myself on the show just focused on what's in front of me and what we're talking about on that day. And then I look back and I go, we just did 15 years of radio. Like, you know, what happened there? Yeah, that's one of the things with uh, the ISO as well as the other podcasts and shows that we do on Gonzaga Nation SI is we're always looking to create different avenues and different angles to, to have guests. And so you've got to have a constant pipeline. You have a number of uh, recurring guests, but you also have to try to find guests that maybe have a national appeal. How do you pull a guest like a President Obama? What are the steps to go ahead and one, get in contact with the right person, and then two, get them to confirm, and then three, get them to actually call in at the correct time? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think, you know, I have, I've always had good producers who are great at sort of getting out in front and seeing those things. But 
you know, the president was coming to the state of Oregon. He only wanted to do one interview. I knew he loved sports. So we went and said, look, let's pitch him on the idea of doing a kind of a fun interview. Not, we're not going to talk about healthcare on my show. We're not going to talk about the budget or the deficit or national security. I wanted to know what it's like to be a dad and, and be a politician and throw out the first pitch at a White Sox game. And it was really interesting having him on the show. Once he started talking and he realized this wasn't going to be his normal interview, man, did he loosen up. And we just talked basketball and we talked baseball and we talked about being a parent and having daughters. You know, I have daughters, he has daughters, you have a, you have a whole stable of kids. Like it's all stuff that's very relatable. And so uh, that conversation, and I'll be honest, I was nervous. Like I'm very rarely nervous when I interview someone, but I was a little nervous for that interview because I didn't want to mess it up. So you're nervous going into an interview with someone as prominent as a former president Obama, you know, there's a nervousness as a former athlete, you remember going into games. And if there, you don't have that nervousness, it means it doesn't care. But when you look back at the course of the interviews that you've had, are there a couple that stand out? Like you either had a great guest and they were better than you thought, or maybe you had a guest that was, maybe you didn't know what to expect, but then they brought their A game and you brought their A game. Yeah. I think sometimes it's the surprises that you get. It's not necessarily the, you know, I've had big guests. I've, I've had you on the show. I've had Mike Tyson on the show. We've had the president on the show. We've, you know, had a number of uh, major celebrities that are, you know, because the, you know, the Nike connection in this state really helps too, because you get a lot of big time personalities that are going to be visiting uh, visiting the Nike campus or have relationships there. So we've done those interviews over the years, but I just think like, you know, as I always just love to get to know people. And so I don't script the interviews. I will often just ask what, you know, what, what I think about during the interview. And I'm thinking of myself as more of a, more of a listener. And I think one of the big mistakes that people who are on interview shows make is they don't listen to the guest when the guest is talking. And so they just, they're so eager to skip to the next question. And I think often the interview goes in a very surprising direction. Like with Mike Tyson, we didn't talk that much boxing. We talked about pigeons. We talked about where he gets his pigeons and why, and, and got to know him as a person a little bit. And I think that's the kind of stuff that I'm into. You know, I, I came across Mike Tyson one time in my life. I was with the Blazers <laughs> at the time. Uh, we were on a road trip. I can't remember if we were playing the Clippers or the Lakers, but we were staying at the uh, Beverly Wilshire Hotel and we get off the bus uh, after practice and Mike Tyson is in the, the valet parking area about to get into a car. And I didn't say anything to him, but there's a gravitational pull to a guy like that where you just can't stop watching. Uh, and it was fascinating because I had teammates that, you know, we're the same exact way. And we're talking Zach Randolph. We're talking guys of that level that, that, you know, have, have had a lot of success. And I remember getting onto the bus again later that night to go to a game. That's all they talked about, man. Did you guys see Tyson? Did anybody talk to him? It, it was amazing. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, there's something about, you know, it's really the basis of reality television in today's world, right? Like, why do we watch it? Well, we're fascinated by people. And I think, you know, you even have magazines like Us Magazine, right? My wife will read that magazine when we're on a plane and I, and I flip through it and I realize, you know, what it's the same things that are interesting to me about athletes and people. It's the same in the celebrity world. It's just 
we're interested in knowing how people live and what they think and where, you know, what are they about? And I think, you know, we've all had great conversations. I just love having those conversations on air where we can share them with so many other people. You mentioned in the previous answer, a lot of people come to the state of Oregon and you get connected to them because they're there for Nike and Nike, I'm sure is a very quiet player in this NIL market in the college world. Um, you know, I've always felt that that college athletes should get paid something. What that is, it's beyond me. I don't know. But I also said when NIL was fully let go, okay, we're going for it. I said it was going to take a couple of years to kind of flush out and figure out how it was going to work. You as a journalist, your perspective with your insider conversations that you probably have with some people at Nike and different colleges, what are you seeing in the NIL world? I think athletic directors nationally are concerned. They're all expressing the same thing. We all, we're all reasonable, right? We all think college kids should be able to earn something for their endorsement. It's an, it's a free market, right? But I think there's concern about, you know, what we've seen come up with uh, Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher arguing, you know, uh, what's the difference between buying a player and allowing a player to go out and, you know, benefit from their likeness, their endorsement. Um, I think it's a big difference. And there is a real disparity right now between the universities that have these collectives and have donor bases that have, you know, like Oregon as an example, you've got donors there that have put millions of dollars into a collective. And so how does Washington State compete with that? You know, Washington State has the Cougar Collective, but the Cougar Collective is comprised mostly of donors who are small business owners who, you know, they're putting in $50,000, not $5 million. And so there's a real problem looming between the haves and the have-nots, not just conference to conference, but even within the individual conferences. How does Vanderbilt compete with Alabama? How does how does Washington State and Oregon State compete with Oregon? How does you know it, it, how does Northwestern compete with Ohio State? Like we, these are questions that the NCAA can't answer. So I think what's going to happen, Dan, is I think you're going to see federal legislation. You're going to see lawmakers come in who limit what these collectives can do and limit sort of the scope of when an athlete can receive, start receiving a benefit. You know, can they go, can Nike go to a high school kid as they did recently, two high school kids that have been signed in high school, um, you know, and, and they're able to do that because they're in California because state law in California is different than state law in Washington and Oregon. So it's really messy right now. And the coaches are all nervous. Everybody's talking about it. You know, you cover the Pac-12 really closely. The NIL uh, is broadly across all college athletics. Uh, the previous commissioner of the Pac-12 made a lot of missteps. I think the new commissioner uh, is doing a nice job of, of trying to understand the wants and needs of all 12 members uh, in trying to figure out how best to right the ship. You were critical of the old guy. I think from remembering a lot of the articles you've written, you think the Pac-12 is getting back on track. Am I right? hundred percent. I think, you know, uh, George Klyovkov has come in, he's replaced Larry Scott, and he's just done some really smart things. The first thing he did is, you know, the athletic directors in the conference felt like they were alienated by the last commissioner. They were dismissed. He uh, often would fly into like Pullman, Washington for a game, and he would leave by halftime. He, he never spent time there. They, he, the athletic directors across the conference just n never felt like they had any input. So George Klyovkov in his first week, he goes out, he visits every campus. 
He stays with every campus. He spends time on the campus. He called it a listening tour. It did a lot for him to get him sort of ingrained with the ADs of the conference. I also just think when he talks publicly, and, and your viewers can attest to this, when you see George Kwiatkowski speaking about something, there is a there is a sense that you've got somebody who's in control there, who's got his sleeves rolled up. He's fighting for the conference. Now, he could face plant in the next two years. I mean, there's plenty of obstacles out there, but I think his first year on the job has been a home run. I mean, I just think the conference has somebody that's fighting on its behalf, and the rest of the country stopped laughing at the Pac-12. Well, college football isn't necessarily my number one interest, but when you follow sports the way that I do, you fall into reading a lot of interesting articles, and the Pac-12 football-wise – doesn't have the amount of exposure that your SEC or your Big 12 uh, or Big uh, Big 10 does. What are the kind of remedies to that? Is it a better TV package? Is it timing of when games are put on the right networks? What is it? It's first and foremost, it's got to be success. You got to get into the playoff. And, and these things are connected. The Pac-12 has been operating at a financial disadvantage for the last 10 or 15 years. Their, their media rights deal is nowhere near the media rights deal that you see in the SEC and the Big Ten. Uh, for example, this year, every Pac-12 school will get an average of 10 to $20 million less than every Big Ten and SEC school. That's from their media rights deal. Their largest source of revenue is at a 10 to $20 million deficit. That means per university. So over a 10-year period, we're talking about 20 to $40 million that you know you are you're sitting at a deficit to, but so you got a real problem if you're the Pac-12 in that you cannot adequately fund your programs, at least not on the same level as the Big Ten and the SEC. So you got to have a better media rights deal, but you got to get into the playoff to maximize that because the media rights are will be negotiated in 2024. That's when the current deal is up. So it would really help George Klyovkov if Utah or Oregon or USC could get into the playoff in the next two years. That helps you give something to sell. So these things are all connected, Dan, and it's a real problem. Well, the NCAA tournament is one of the, the greatest sports events because it's spread out literally over four weeks. You got the conference tournament that generates the initial buzz, selection Sunday, and then the three weeks of the actual tournament. I think college football would do itself a lot of help by expanding past four teams. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer that they have to go to more. You know, they need an expansion. Um, the system is broken, and it's not really a playoff, if you think about it. It's, you know, the NFL has a playoff. You, uh, in the NFL, what do they do? They cast a wide net. They uh, invite a, uh, an adequate number of teams, and then they let it play out. In the NBA, they do the same thing. But with college football, it's an invitational right? They just take the best four teams. Think about that from a standpoint of Major League Baseball. The Atlanta Braves are your defending champion in the World Series. They would not have been in the top four teams in Major League Baseball. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers two years ago were the five seed in the NFC. Uh, you know, I kept, I, you know, I kept looking at the, you know, the playoffs with the Rams and the Bengals wondering, like, if you put the playoff, college football playoff people in charge, like, you know, you get a whole different system. So it's a broken system. They need, uh, you know, eight teams would probably be adequate. I like 12 because I think it gives you some buys. It, it allows all five power five conference champions to get an automatic berth. 
Uh, I think you need a bigger system. And I, and I think they know that. They just can't agree on what exactly is that system. Well, hopefully it gets squared away in the next couple of years because, you know, I don't watch a lot of college football, but I do know that when it comes to the playoffs and the title game, I, I do tune in. I want to go to the, the NBA for the last couple of questions before I let you go. I know you got busy days, uh, as we all do. But the Portland Trailblazers – kind of had a topsy-turvy year. Damian Lillard was out. They didn't get the uh, hopeful lottery selection that they were, were hoping with the ping pong balls. That's the basketball side. The community side, though, you've written a lot of articles recently on one of my favorite, not a player, but someone connected to the organization, Bill Shonley. Tell us just what Bill Shonley means to the Portland community, because I remember as a kid growing up, Lickety Brindle up the middle, Rip City, <laughs> all those one-liners that yeah. I would listen to as we were driving around Portland uh, when he was broadcasting the games. What does I he mean? think? Yeah, I when I got here, I got to the state of Oregon in 2002, and I had come here from covering the NFL, Major League Baseball. I'd worked in other markets. I covered Bobby Knight as a beat reporter years ago, and Jerry Tarkanian too. So I had seen sort of other places in every market that I had been in. There was a legendary figure, whether it's a broadcaster or a coach or a former player, there's somebody in every market that just matters and resonates with people, almost like an ambassador to the people. Bill Shonley is that person in, in, the, in the Portland area in, in his work with the Blazers. He comes to the organization as their first broadcaster in 1970. When they win the championship in 1977, Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas are throwing the Shans into the, into the showers you know, and and he was that guy with people like you, Dan, and my wife, she talks about growing up and sitting in the living room and listening to Sean Lee call the game. And he just becomes part of the fabric of the fan base. And this is an organization that has had good times and bad times, but the constant has been Bill Sean Lee. He is the ambassador for the organization. Now he's in his nineties. He's no longer broadcasting. He's trying to retire, but he is that figure, you know, when he drives his red Cadillac down I-5 and it's got the Rip City license plates on it, yes. people are honking at him and waving at him. And it's just, I don't, I don't know, you know, for people who are watching, everybody has somebody in their sports market that just, it's a tent pole. And if we're doing a Mount Rushmore blazer history, you know, there's consideration that Sean Lee would be on that, on that mountain alongside players like Bill Walton or Damian Lillard and others. Yeah, I, I love Bill Shonley. I got to know him when I was a player there a couple different times. Uh, heart of gold. He still has got that perfect voice for broadcasting. Uh, and the last time I talked to him, he had as much energy as I could imagine for somebody who was in their 80s at the time. So yeah. um, thank you for covering him a little bit like you have recently. Last question, though, NBA playoffs. You've got four teams left, two of the teams, but in the Eastern Conference have Portland ties. Ime Udoka with the Celtics, as well as many of his assistant coaches, and Peyton Pritchard. Uh, and then you've got Eric Spolstra, who was from the University of Portland and Jesuit High School with the Miami Heat. What do you see out of that series? And do you, as a Portlander now, have a pull or a tug for either one of those two organizations with their Portland ties? Man, it's so hard with that series because Ime not it's not just Ime and Peyton Pritchard on the Celtics. It's it's Damon Stoudemire and several other assistants. And then you go to the Western Finals and you've got, you know, Nico Harrison, who is yeah. from the Portland area, is the GM of the Mavericks. So it's like, you know, the Northwest is all over these playoffs. If you look 
closely enough. And I thought it was interesting that a couple of the broadcasts mentioned it, but just in passing, I think it's interesting. I, Ime Odoka is such a good story. His parents were immigrants from Nigeria. He, you know, rode buses. Uh, they were homeless for a while. Um, he fought his way into the NBA and, and it, you know, he got there. Finally, you know, he had the good fortune, I think, of coming in contact with Greg Popovich in San Antonio, who saw, you know, you've got a, you've got a future in coaching. And I think it really is a testament to when an organization invests in people, invests in former players and, and believes in them, doesn't dismiss them. Uh, I think it really shows that they can really grow. And I think that, you know, the, the Celtics were smart to hire him. I don't think it's accidental. I think Danny Ainge's uh, influence on the Celtics over the years is, is evident. Uh, Ime is there. Peyton Pritchard's there. You know, there are a lot of people who thought Peyton couldn't play. You know, he's too short. He's, he, who's he going to guard? Look at him. He was plus 39 on his plus minus last night. I mean, it was remarkable to see him in play, you know, in significant minutes. So I'm really, uh, I'm really hoping we get a Boston, uh, maybe a Boston Dallas or a Boston Golden State final. Cause I, I think Ime Adoka is one of those people that is so easy to root for. Yeah. Ime uh, is definitely easy to root for. We were teammates for a time. Uh, you probably don't know this. I don't know if I shared you this story. The year I was coaching with the Blazers in summer league, Ime was down there just to be around summer league, uh, support some of the guys that he coached in AAU. And he had told me Popovich called him that morning and wanted to talk to him about uh, maybe joining their coaching staff. But Ime wasn't sure because he thought he might still want to go play one more year in Spain because a team or two was talking to him about playing. I looked at him. I said, Greg Popovich wants you to coach. I think that's <laughs> a pretty good opportunity right there. Lo and behold, yeah. he's doing an amazing job as a head coach, but um, John, I really appreciate the time. I listen uh, to your stuff when I'm down in the Portland area, and, and I appreciate uh, reading your stuff both on the newsletter and online. So thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan.